morning, everybody. It's good to see you. If we've never met, my name's Jay. I'm a part of the team here at Westgate. Thank you so much for coming. I know we got folks in uh, the theater and online as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I want to begin by showing you an image. It's an image of an ancient tablet, thousands of years old. This is an ancient uh, Babylonian tablet that tells a part of a story called the Atrahasis. And the Atrahasis is this 4,000 years old Babylonian story. It's a an archaic mythological story that the Babylonians would tell about how the gods created humans. And the story, I mean, it's very long and complex, but the short of it is, it goes something like this. At the beginning of time, there were many gods, and they were separated by age. There were older gods and younger gods. And the older gods, as they would, made the younger gods do all the work of caring for and stewarding the earth. And the younger gods got really upset at this. And so they rebelled. They started to war against the older gods. And there was this sort of Babylonian god civil war. And eventually, one god named Enki came up with a beautiful plan. He said, hey, gods, let's stop fighting each other. We're gods. We can fix this. And he decides he's going to create a different being called human beings. And the human beings would do all the work, all the labor. And so uh, the gods decide, how are we going to do this? And then this one heroic god called Wei Ilu says, I'll do it. I'll sacrifice myself. And from my body, you can create humans. And so the god Wei Ilu sacrifices himself. And then a goddess uh, named um, Nintu, I think, uh, she, she takes Wei Ilu's Uh, flesh and blood, mixes it with clay, and then creates the first humans, seven men, seven women. And then these first humans began to do the work that the gods did not want to do. So the Babylonian gods create humans for labor. And initially, the Babylonian gods are really pleased. They're like, man, this is awesome. We lean back. We eat grapes. I don't, know, I don't know what Babylonian gods do. But they're just leisurely going through life, and all the humans are doing work. And then the humans began doing something that the gods did not expect. They began to multiply. They have more and more children, more and more humans. Now, on the one hand, that's great because there's more slaves to do the labor. But on the other hand, the gods began uh, becoming really, really annoyed because these humans are loud and they're chaotic. And yes, they do the labor, but they do it loudly, and it disturbs the gods' sleep. And so the gods get really angry with the humans, and they start to send plagues, and they eventually send a flood to wipe out a bunch of the humans. Does this sound familiar? Interesting. And so the the humans are enslaved to the gods. A bunch of them get wiped out, and essentially um, the humans are made by the Babylonian gods for the sake of labor. That's how the story goes. That's what this tablet, it's the story this tablet tells. Now, on the one hand, we hear a story like that and we think to ourselves, wow, that's just like a really ancient, archaic, barbaric, mythological story. It's kind of interesting to hear, but there's no way that that's how the world works. But if we read between the lines just a little bit, what we begin to realize pretty quickly is that the delta or the difference between this archaic mythological Babylonian creation story 
and our modern, material, secular understanding of human experience is pretty minimal. Because at the end of the day, what the modern, material, secular world wants to tell you and wants to sell you is the concept, the idea, the perceived truth that as a human being, you're primarily here on this planet as a sort of random happenstance. And the best that you can do is labor, toil, enjoy what little you can on the blip that is your life throughout history, and then at the end of it all, your life just comes to an end in a meaningless heap. This is the Babylonian and so many other ancient pagan creation stories. That life is essentially about labor and toil and then you die. And so earn and achieve and accumulate and enjoy as much as you can right now because at the end of it all, it's over and then you're done. You were made for labor and then someday it will end. That's the story today. It was the story thousands of years ago in Babylon and in so many pagan cultures. But some of us in this room know a different creation story, the truest creation story. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then that story continues in verses 26 to 28. God said, let us... Make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then here's the key, God blessed them. This is not enslavement language. This is actually in the ancient world what fathers would give to their children. It would would be like the last hurrah before the end of life. You would give your loving blessing to your child or your children. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. In this, the true creation story, the one true God of the universe creates a good world. And in the true creation story, God creates humans not as slaves, but as image bearers, imbued with intrinsic meaning and dignity and value, with eternity in our hearts, as the scriptures tell us. God is not annoyed at human multiplication. He invites and commands human multiplication. He doesn't say there's too many humans, they're too loud. He says, be fruitful and multiply. God doesn't enslave human beings in the true creation story. He empowers them to steward his good world. What I'm trying to communicate to you is that in essence, in the true creation story, which is important because it gives us a glimpse into meaning for us as human beings, God does not create humans for labor. He creates us out of and for love. Let me say that again to you. God did not create you for labor and toil and struggle. God created you out of and for love. You bear his image. You are called to live a fruitful life, whatever that might look like. 
God has invited you into a loving relationship with him as his image bearer, not as a slave. You are empowered, not enslaved, empowered to steward his good world. Now, how do we know this? How do we know God created out of love, that created the world and humans out of love? Because it doesn't say that explicitly in Genesis chapter 1. The most famous verse in the Bible, the um, NFL season is kicking off today. Thank you to all of you who are here. So holy. You're missing the Niners game kickoff. Everyone's recording it. Please do not share scores, right? Tyler Smith over there is very angry if you share a score. I will be as well. Do not share scores. Um, And at these NFL games, as you watch the game, what are you going to see in the crowd? You're going to see some signs that say what? John 316, John 316, for God so what? Loved. For God so loved the world. Not for God so longed for labor from the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We're going to get into the teaching today, which is a part of a series, but I just, I I read a statistic um, earlier this week that the average American adult, 47% of the time, is thinking about something that they're not actually doing. 47% of the time, our minds are wandering to other thoughts. So what that tells me is that about half of this sermon, you're going to tune out and think about the Niners game or what you're going to have for lunch or whatever, and that's okay. No guilt, no judgment. That's perfectly fine, but please, please shut down that 47% just right now for one moment. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. God loves you. You can tune out now. But just if you can capture this idea, it changes everything. God loves you. He loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, God loves you. That deep, dark secret inside that causes so much guilt, shame, pain. You cannot bear the thought of it coming to light. God knows and he loves you anyways. Now he doesn't want you to stay there. He doesn't want you to linger in that brokenness. And he is, he's offering you a path out. But he loves you just the same. God loves you. The writer Brendan Manning puts it this way. Define yourself radically. As one beloved by God, this is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. You are beloved by God. Listen, if you don't believe it, if you can't believe it, just please know, one, I get it. Sometimes it's hard to believe that we are loved this way. I just want you to know one of the beautiful things about the church, you are in a room full of people right now who believe it for you. Even if you do not sense God loves you, just let this room be a physical reminder. There are hundreds of people that believe God loves you. You know why? Because they've experienced that love from God, and they know how broken they are. I've experienced that love of God, and I know how broken I am. Last week, we started this brand new series called The Life We Want. And what we're doing is we're exploring sort of the key values, the pillars upon which our church is built. The call to be disciples of Jesus, that Westgate Church exists 
to be and to make disciples. And the disciples are people who learn and live the way of Jesus here in Silicon Valley in all of life. And the way of Jesus can be summarized in short in three specific ways. A life of love that moves in three directions. To love God, to love our neighbor, and to love one another. And today as we continue that series, I want to talk about exactly that. Loving God. Knowing that we are beloved by God and returning that love to God. I want to propose to you that that is actually the path to the life that you want. Not the life you think you want, but the actual life that deep in your soul as a human being, beloved by God, made in his image, the life that you actually want. Living a life of love toward God, the God who loves us more than we can possibly know, is, I believe, the first step on the path toward the life we all want. Mark chapter 12, Jesus says these beautiful and profound words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God. Love God with heart, soul, mind, strength, with everything you've got. Love God with everything you've got. That's Jesus' invitation. This is the same Jesus who said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they, that you, that we might have life and life to the full. We talked about this last Sunday. That word full means whole, complete, without need, extraordinary. The extraordinary life, the life we want. And what Jesus says is one of the ways to get there is to love God with everything you've got, heart, soul, mind, strength. So before we explore exactly what that means, what that looks like, why it's important, we've got to ask two questions. When we say love God, first we have to ask the question, what is love? Like what do we mean when we say love? And secondly, we've got to ask the question, who is God? Like who exactly are we talking about? So first, what is love? Um, a couple of years ago, uh, my mom was over at our house and she was helping us um, create a little, small little mini garden in our backyard because uh, we wanted one, but we don't, I don't have a green thumb. So she was like, she's into that kind of thing. So she had this little planter box in our backyard and she's like, you know, I don't know what she was doing because I don't know how to garden, but she was like doing stuff with the soil and planting seeds and water and some like weird net thing that she was putting over it. And as she was planting this garden, getting her hands all dirty in the soil, Right next to her, my two young children were, um, I was blowing bubbles. It was a warm Saturday, and I was blowing bubbles, and they were, like, running around chasing the bubbles. And I had this moment where I realized, oh, this is it. This is the juxtaposition between cultural versions of love, what culture tells us or sells us that love is, and biblically speaking, what love actually is. What I mean is this. Culture's version of love typically looks like chasing bubbles. It typically looks like um, pursuing that sort of elusive feeling, like a bubble floating out there, and you're trying to grab at it before the bubble bursts, right? Cultural versions of love are essentially like the spark you feel, the butterflies in the stomach. And yet once you have even a glimmer of it, you got to chase it with everything you've got before it bursts. This is problematic, though, because bubbles always burst. 
Like the butterflies in the stomach, that energy, that spark you feel toward that person the first time you meet them, it, it never lasts. It never lasts. Those of you who've been married for a long time, Chris is a different story, right? Now he wakes up every day and he's just like, oh my gosh, sparks and fire, whatever, right? Okay, that's going to end, Chris, Christopher. You know, you thought that drive after your wedding was rough. Just wait, like three years. It's going to go away. It's going to go away, right? He's not going to wake up every morning and be like, oh, my gosh, this is so magical. He's going to be like, uh, why am I up? It's too early, you know? It goes away, right? It doesn't mean the love is gone. But many of us believe that's exactly what it means. This is like one of the reasons why not just marriages but relationships of all kind come to a screeching halt. Because when the relationship doesn't feel good anymore, when the bubble bursts, we're like, oh, there it is. That was nice while it lasted, but the love is gone, and so I move on. Cultural versions of love are like chasing bubbles, but biblically speaking, love is more like gardening. Biblically speaking, love is an effortful commitment to work for the good and the well-being of the other, even at great cost to self. Biblically speaking, love is like getting your hands in the dirt. And even though you cannot see the fruit yet, you believe that if you can keep tilling the soil, giving it water and sunlight, that over the long haul, you will begin to bear fruit in that relationship. That's love. There are some of you who have been in marriages, loving marriages for decades, or um, a best friend that you've had for a really long time. And you've experienced this sort of love, the depth of love, because you've been through the darkness of life together and you made it out on the other side. Okay. What you realized on the other side of that soil is like, yeah, that was hard work and it was painful and it was not easy. And often I looked at the dirt of our relationship and I thought, is anything happening? And what you realized was over the span of many months, years, decades, something was happening. And as long as I stayed committed, as long as I stayed true, as long as I continued to give and to sacrifice, love came alive, real, genuine, deep, meaningful, transformative love. That's love, biblically speaking. It's not a feeling. It's not a spark. It is the commitment to work for the good and the well-being of the other, even at great cost to self. 1 John chapter 4, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. That God loved you and me so much that before we ever even knew to ask, he sent Jesus, his son, to give up the ultimate thing, his own life, so that we might have life. That's love. That's gardening. The 13th century theologian Thomas Aquinas famously said, love is to will the good of the other. It is to will the good of the other. Not to just feel it from time to time, but to will it with our entire being, with our actions, our efforts. The psychologist M. Scott Peck says that true love is not a feeling by which we are overwhelmed. It is a committed, thoughtful decision because true love is an act of will that often transcends ephemeral feelings. So what is love? Love is a committed 
thoughtful, often sacrificial act of will. Let's establish that first. Here at Westgate, when we talk about let's love God together, we are not saying let's show up, sing some songs, and feel butterflies for about 12 minutes. What we are saying is let's have a committed, thoughtful, even a willingness to sacrifice an act of will in the mount, on the mountaintops and in the valleys and in the long plateaus in between, an act of will to extend love toward God because he has first loved us. Now the second question, if that is what love is, then who is God? Who are we talking about when we say love God? As the modern world grows increasingly pluralistic, the word God has become increasingly confusing. So what do we mean when we say God here at Westgate? Now this will be just kind of by way of reminder for many of you, but for some of us this is really important. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not religious, you came because you're looking for some hope or a friend or a family member or a coworker or a classmate invited you. If that is you, one, we are thrilled you're here. We're so grateful you came. And you don't have to believe what I'm about to say. You just need to know this is what we mean here at Westgate when we talk about God. Again, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we talk about God, we are talking about the one true God of the universe in the biblical story who created all things at the beginning of time. Thomas Aquinas, again, he says, nothing can move itself. There must be a first mover. The first mover is called God. When we talk about God here at Westgate, we are talking about the one true God of the universe who moved first, created all things. The fourth century Christian creed, the Nicene Creed, it says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. When we talk about God here at Westgate, we are talking about our God, God our Father, who made all things that are visible and invisible. And here's the thing, this, this one God of the Bible, the God we encounter in the Genesis creation story, he is one God, and we've talked about this here at Westgate before, but he exists mysteriously as three in one. In Christian theology, this is called the Trinity. This idea that God, our God, the one true God of the universe, is in his very nature relational, that he is three in one. Now, this does not make sense humanly and mathematically, so don't try to figure, out, uh, figure it out with human math. It doesn't really make sense. The most important thing to know is that what we believe about God is that he is three in one, therefore he is relational in nature. This is why earlier when we read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God did not say, let me make humankind in my image. Do you remember what he said? Let us make humankind in our image. There is one God, a single God, but he exists in relationship as three in one. Sixth century creed, the Athanasian creed says this, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost all, is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. 
Father, Spirit, Son. That is who we're talking about when we talk about God. God, the creator of all things, the first mover at the beginning of time who exists in Trinity, in relationship, Father, Spirit, Son. The writer Michael Reeves describes it this way. He says, here is a God who is not essentially lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for this God at all. It is at the root of who he is. God is love because God is a trinity. God is relational by his very nature, which is why the Bible tells us that God is love. Of course, he's been loving since the beginning of time. And the reason we talk about Jesus so much here. The reason we define a disciple uh, as somebody who is learning and living the way of Jesus is because Jesus is a part of the Trinitarian God. In other words, Jesus is God. He is the Son in the Trinity. And he reveals to us in flesh and blood what God is like and who God really is. Colossians 1, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. John 14, Jesus himself says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so, if that is what love is, and this is who God is, then let's talk about what it means then to love God. Again, back to Mark chapter 12. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Heart, soul, mind, strength in the ancient literature is a way of describing the entire integrated person. I think one of the reasons why you and I in the modern world find ourselves so exhausted in life is because of disintegration. In a mad rush for efficiencies, sometimes out of shame or guilt, many of us have compartmentalized our lives. Now, compartmentalization in and of itself is not necessarily bad. It can be helpful from time to time. But it is dangerous when we compartmentalize the human life as a whole. What I mean is many of us have a church life. And then separate from that, we have a social life. And then separate from that, we have a family life and then a work life. Some of us have a secret life that we don't want anybody else to know about. But this is not how God designed us to live. The writer Andy Crouch says that the human person is a heart, soul, mind, strength complex designed for love. In other words, you are a heart, soul, mind, strength human being, individual, image bearer of God, designed as an integrated person to receive the love of God and to give that love back. What that means is we have to begin to love God and act of will toward the God of the universe through our hearts, our minds, our strength, and our soul. So let's quickly take these one by one. First, what does it mean to love God with our heart? The ancient Greeks called the heart the seat of our affections. The heart is essentially the center of our desires, our longings, and our motivations. And to love God with our hearts is to direct our desires, our longings, our motivations toward him. Um, I've said this already during this series last Sunday, but I'll say it again because it's so important. This is one of the reasons why we invite you to gather and to worship like this. It's one of the reasons why we sing week after week. There is a power in music, just as one of many examples, 
There's a power in music that can redirect and reorient our hearts and actually reshape and reform our desires and our longings and our motivations. The writer James Smith, he says that worship that restores us is worship that restories us. So we gather to sing week after week. We gather to sit under the teaching of God's word. We gather in life groups to share our hearts with one another, to confess the the sort of misalignment of some of our desires and longings from time to time. We do these things as an invitation for God to restory us. In other words, to to place us in a different story, a story of love. And so to love God is to orient or reorient our desires and our longings and our motivations toward God first and foremost. So the question for us is, is there anything in your life you desire or long for? Or is there something in your life that is the primary motivation for the decisions you make that is not God? And if you want to love God with your heart, it is the act of will to reorient those desires, longings, and motivations back toward God and away from everything else. What does it mean to love God with our minds? The mind is the center of ideas and values which help us see and understand and engage our lives and our world in particular ways. And so to love God with our minds is to direct our thoughts, our ideas, and values toward God and his kingdom. This is why in Philippians 4, it says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The theologian John Stott famously once said, if we do not use the mind God has given us, we condemn ourselves to spiritual superficiality and cut ourselves off from many of the riches of God's grace. So... um, Uh, Like a series ago, we did this whole series called The Unseen, where we were exploring uh, the spiritual realm. And one of the things we learned from that series is that the devil, God's enemy, the way he wages war for our souls is primarily on the battlefield of ideas. That the enemy of God typically, the way he most commonly attacks us is to whisper lies to us, to fill our minds with untruths. And one of the ways we love God is with our minds to recalibrate and reorient our thoughts, to think about the things that are of God and his kingdom. You know, I shared that statistic with you earlier, that uh, the average American adult, 47% of the time, is thinking about something that they're not actually doing. So let's think about that 47% throughout your average week. How many of that, how much of that 47% would you categorize as um, true, noble, right? pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy? What percentage? Just give me a percentage, personally, from your life. <laughs> Zero. Robert's honest. Yeah, he, I expected no one to say anything, because it's embarrassing, right? It's a very small percent. Robert, it's not zero. I know it's not zero for you. Right? It's like, honestly, where do you fix your thoughts? And it's not even just like really dark, sinister ways. I'm just talking about like in basic ways. When you're at, in line at the grocery store, what do you do? In any moment of boredom, particularly in the digital age, what do you do? Without even knowing why, your hand like takes over your body and you're like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? 
oh my goodness, I cannot control myself. And then this, whatever is here, is filling your mind. Now, I'm not saying don't ever look at your phone, although that is actually maybe good advice. What I am saying is, would you consider what you think about? Because to love God includes to love him with your thoughts. Can you sit at the red light and instead of breaking the law by opening your phone and scrolling social media, could you just sit quietly on your commute to and from work or class this week and in every moment that's a red light where you've got to wait, instead of opening the phone or instead of listening to the podcast, could you spend a week filling your mind just with the thoughts of God? God, you're good. God, you love me. No matter what I'm going through right now, no matter what I've done or what's been done to me, right now in this car, at this red light, in the boredom, you're with me and you love me. That's a way in which we love God. And finally, to love God with our strength. Strength is our embodied participation. It's the means by which we follow through and enact the various desires, longings, motivations of our hearts and the various ideas and values of our minds. This is why in Philippians 4, 9, we read, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Don't just hear this stuff. In your body, do the stuff. Where you go, what you do, why you do the things you do, where you exert strength, energy, your time, your resources. This is one of the reasons why we do Beautiful Day every year. I don't think we made it clear in the video, but if you're new to our church, uh, you may have noticed Beautiful Day is October 8th and 9th, which are a Saturday and a Sunday. So actually, if you show up to this building on Sunday, October 9th, no one will be here. Because we actually, church does not end, like the church is not canceled on October 9th, by the way. Um, we just don't gather in this room to worship. Instead, on Sunday, October 9th, we will gather in pockets of dozens and hundreds all throughout Santa Clara County, worshiping Jesus with our bodies. We love God together by sweating and laboring with hammers and paintbrushes. And listen, like, it's not because you're awesome at it. I, I, I'm terrible with a hammer and a paintbrush in my hand. But I'm going to be out there butchering some school's wall, and then you're going to be there to fix it, Right? Because it's an act of worship, and God doesn't care whether your worship sounds spectacular or not. He just cares that with your body, you are giving him what you have. And then the soul is that which wraps everything together. Again, the entire integrated system of a human being all put together, heart, mind, and strength. This is what it means to love God. I'm going to invite Chris and the team back up, and we're going to sing and respond together. Um, and we're going to sing as an act of loving God together. But um, I want to invite us to a, a particular exercise. I just As the band gets settled and uh, we begin to prepare our hearts for worship, to love God through our songs, um, I want you to just quietly begin taking some deep breaths. Don't freak out. This isn't some like new age spirituality kind of thing. You're like, what's go is he going to start floating now? I'm not. Just start taking some deep breaths, maybe through your nose and exhale out your mouth. Just take some deep breaths. 
And as you breathe deeply, I, want, I know you can't necessarily hear it, but I want you to actually begin focusing on your heart beating. I know you can't hear it. Maybe, maybe if you want to, like put your hand over your chest. Just feel your heart beating. In an average lifespan, the human heart, your human heart, in an average lifespan will beat more than two and a half billion times. Just today, your heart will beat more than 100,000 times. And until this moment right now, 99% of you woke up, and until this moment, you have not given a second thought to the fact that your heart is beating and that it's going to beat 100,000 times today. But here's what you need to know. If it stopped, you'd be dead, right? All of your worries, all of your concerns, are the Niners gonna win today? What am I gonna have for lunch? This relationship, this financial situation, am I gonna climb up that corporate professional ladder? All of those things, if this little muscle in your chest stopped beating, none of them would matter. None of them would matter. And every single beat of your heart, the right atrium receives blood from the body. It pumps it to the right ventricle, which pumps the blood into the lungs, where the blood gets oxygenated. And then that oxygenated blood flows through the left atrium, through the left ventricle, into the body. And then from the body, that blood flows right back to the right atrium and on and on and on. And your body today will do that a hundred thousand times and in your life it will do it billions of times this is how love works love comes alive when it's on the move when it's idle it just degenerates into a shallow superficial feeling but love at its best works like the human heart in a cohesive harmonious flow moving pulsing with life receiving giving receiving giving on and on and on Many of us struggle to give love to God because we struggle to receive the love of God. And this is because of all sorts of things. Again, our past, guilt, shame, what we've done, what's been done to us, our family of origin, our past. And that stuff is complex. That's why we have a care ministry here and a partnership with Christian Counseling Center. If you need help receiving love in your life, talk to us. Let us know. We would love to come alongside you. Because until you receive the love of a God who gave his son for you out of love, you will never be able to adequately, fully, with joy, love God back. And if you can't do that, then it's like your heart no longer beating. And you are breathing, but you're no longer living. And all of us want to live. We want to live lives that are full and to the full. So again, me reading a verse or two will not change your life. But I do want to read you a verse. Because I want to remind you, no matter how hard it is to receive the love of God and give that love back to God, I said it in the beginning. If you hear nothing else, hear this. God loves you. Romans chapter 8, the writer Paul, he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love, from, uh, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
neither death, life, angels, demons, present, future, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation, your brokenness, your pain, your shame, your guilt, your past, your family, your history, your failures. Nothing can separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. You are loved. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how ashamed or guilty you feel, no matter how broken you are, no matter how much you think you lack, no matter how far behind you think you are, you are loved and there is nothing on the planet or the universe or the cosmos that can separate you from the love of God. So my prayer is that you would receive that love and give that love back to him. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.